0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. My name is Father Matt. I'm one of the rectors here. We continue to get just some wonderful texts from Dr. Wilder Gaffney. In 2 Samuel today, we hear about David handing over seven descendants from Saul's family to the Gibeonites so they can hang them publicly, impale them on stakes to fulfill blood guilt. Life for life logic here. And then Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Let us pray. So which is it? Is it death for death, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Or is it do not resist? Is it turn the other cheek? I want to suggest that we see in our text from 2 Samuel a creative embodiment of turning the other cheek, of giving over your coat as well, of of going two miles instead of one. These commands by Jesus in Matthew 5 addressed to first century colonized Palestinian peasants Who would be slapped, robbed, and forced to do manual labor by their Roman colonizers, doing these things when oppressed would have been a protest to their oppressors to recognize their dignity. Turning the other cheek, handing over all your clothes so that you're standing naked before the person who wants to rob you, and going an extra mile were ways to reveal or shame the oppressive person into recognizing, A, the harm that they're doing, and B, assert the dignity of the one they've harmed. And we see in 2 Samuel this same creative act that pronounces judgment on the idea that violence can be solved with more violence. Today, friends, we proclaim the good news that although the logic of war even today, runs on bloodlust and human rights violations couched in pious-sounding language like proportionate responses. The logic of Jesus' kingdom, his political economy, runs on creative acts of prophetic witness that oppose injustice by telling the truth about wrong, that dignifies the oppressed and shames the oppressor. Let us then tell the truth. Let us then reclaim our dignity. Let us then learn to have this same creative courage. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 21. If you want to uh, open uh, your study Bible to that, you can. We're going to talk about this because I think it's uh, instructive not only uh, for what we're dealing with today in our world, but also as we've proclaimed um, on how to read the Old Testament. Sometimes when texts bother us, how do we read them in ways that don't scandalize our conscience? I'm going to lead us through that today, if you'll permit me. In 11 minutes. Verse 1 of chapter 21 of 2 Samuel says that God told David, Quote, there is blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So David then meets with the Gibeonites. They come up with this plan to make things square. It's only going to take seven kids of Saul, and they're going to be executed. And then the bodies are buried, and then the famine ends. Boom, shakalaka. Easy peasy. David is the hero, right? That's one option, right? Assume that this is straightforward, that David is the hero. He hears from God and he expiates blood guilt on Israel and saves his people from famine. And you can even, you may have even heard a sermon that then compares David to Jesus, right? Satiating or expiating the blood guilt in the land, ending the great spiritual famine that we all experience alienated from God. That will preach, but not for me and not today. The other option, there probably are more than two, but I'll just use two here. That we can assume there's more going on here. What if David isn't the hero? What if he's the anti-hero? If we've been paying attention to the women that David is mistreating and harming, this is a theme after David and Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel, uh, up until then, the, the, the monarchy is kind of going like this. David reaches the summit and then... Bathsheba happens, and literally all hell breaks loose in the dynasty. What if David is an anti hero? What if his actions don't end the famine? What if his actions have created the famine? And what if Rizpah is the hero? And what if her actions bring justice and end the famine? I'd rather explore this one today. And I think this is why Dr. Gaffney puts this in her lectionary and pairs it with Matthew 5. We'll talk about that more later. So let's do that. Just for the sake of fun. Because today we proclaim the good news. That although our world runs on a logic of war and bloodlust and human rights violations couched in pious religious language, even political language, of proportionate responses, eyes for eyes, hostages for hostages, children for children. The political economy of Jesus runs on a different logic. Amen? His economy, the kingdom, runs on creative acts of prophetic witness that oppose injustice by telling the truth about wrong, dignifying the oppressed, and shaming the oppressor. So let us then tell the truth. Let us reclaim dignity and learn the creative courage of Rizpah today. So, verse 1, we're told that David hears an oracle from God. This is a private message. Yellow flag. <laughs> just want to say, no one's there to fact check. Right? <clears throat> this is a private message. God told me that we see enacted here. And David says that God says the cause of the famine is caused by Saul and his family because he killed these Gibeonites, right? But there's zero scriptural evidence that Saul did anything violent or wrong or killed even a single Gibeonite. This is the only place that this is mentioned, which means it's not necessarily untrue, but we should be like, oh, wait, I haven't heard that before. I mean, a Hebrew listening to this would be like, when? When? So, we only have David's word that he heard from God, and only David is talking about God, talking about the Gibeonites. <clears throat> Two big problems. Third big problem. David doesn't go, oh, blood guilt, that sucks. God, what should I do? Who does he ask on what to do? He goes to the Gibeonites. Yellow flag number three. It's the Gibeonites then who say, you know what? We don't need cash. We don't want any dead bodies. We're good. This is verse four. And then David goes, whatever you want, I'll do it for you. Red flag number four. I've lost count, actually. But this is them going, we're good, and David going, actually, anything you want, I'll give it to you. That's in verse four. Does this remind you of any other story? Where a king says, whatever you want, I'll do it for you? Yup. This is what King Herod says to Herodias. Red flag number six. Right? This is like not what a king is supposed to do. All right, let's pause here. Do you see why I'm more interested in the second way of reading this text? Where David isn't the hero? I think that's valid. Maybe Father Ben will preach that at some point. But it's way more interesting. Or not. You don't have to, Ben. It's way more interesting to understand that the Hebrew Scriptures are really, really creative. And they're they're up to more things than it seems like they're up to. All right. So we've got a half dozen red flags, yellow flags at least. And then we're told in the story that David takes Armoni and Mephibosheth, sure, two sons of Saul's lower wife, Rizpah, and hands them over to the Gibeonites, along with five sons from Saul's daughter, Merib, and they were hung publicly. If that's the problem with the famine, then the famine should be over, right? No, not yet. Verse 10, we're told that Rizpah, uh, who is a lower wife of Saul, not really a concubine because she had full rights as a legal wife, but, you know, Saul and David were had multiple wives. So she's not first in line. Uh, also, she was taken as a wife when consent wasn't really a thing. It's before 2012, so consent really wasn't a thing. Just let that sink in. It's not, it's not really a joke. Also in 2 Samuel 3, we're told that Saul's former commanding general, Abner, he's accused of raping Rizpah after Saul's death, and he doesn't deny it. So the reader, that's you and me, are left to think, well, yeah, he did that. So Rizpah is a lower wife of Saul, a sexual abuse survivor who has no say over her sons being taken from her. In the text, I think it's verse 8 or 9, we're told David took her two sons. It's the same words as David took Bathsheba. It's this grabbing something that isn't yours. Red flag number 43. So she has no say over her sons being taken from her. David again does what he wants with the women in his life without concern for what they care about. This is quoting from Dr. Gaffney. Quote, Rizpah watches the corpses of her sons stiffen, soften, swell, and sink into the stench of decay. She fights with winged, clawed, and toothed scavengers night and day. She is there from the spring harvest until the fall rains. As many as six months. Sleeping, eating, toileting, protecting, and bearing witness. Six months. Six months fighting wild beasts watching her sons rot in the sun. We could say it like this, she makes sure that the injustice is done to her sons doesn't get lost in the news cycle. She keeps the public focus on the injustice. She won't let David or Israel forget. She is, we could say, a persistent widow who doesn't stop demanding justice. The fact that the bodies weren't buried, I think, gives credence to this account that David is acting here in self-interest. There's no reason, if it's blood guilt, for him not to bury these bodies. None. The enti- unless the entire point of what David is doing at the Gibeonites is to show his political muscle. And to besmirch and shame Saul's house and these kids he killed or young men he killed would have been political claimants to the throne that David held. This is from the Jewish Virtual Library. Decent burial was regarded to be of great importance in ancient Israel. One of the most frequently employed curses found in Mesopotamian texts is, quote, may the earth not receive your corpses, or the equivalent. In the same way, one can measure the importance of Israelites attached to burial by the frequency with which the Bible refers to the fear of being left unburied. Thus, one of the curses for breach of the covenant is, Deuteronomy 28, 26, thy carcasses shall be food until all the fowls of the air, unto all the beasts of the earth, This is not a mistake. Additionally, just back in 2 Samuel 19, the aged Barzillai, I think that's the first time I've ever said his name out loud, did not wish to go with David. And this is what he says, quote, I'm not going with you, quote, that I may die in mine own city and be buried by the grave of my father and mother. This is super important to Hebrews. So now this picture is emerging, right? David intends these bodies to be impaled on a stake, i.e. lynched, and left out to be eaten by wild animals, which the Hebrew Bible says both of those things are cursed. Curses anyone who hangs on a tree. Is enough yellow flags for us? Verse 11, though, is when uh, the, the narrative begins to pivot. When David was told what Rizpah had done, six months. Six months. When David was told what Rizpah had done, and here's where it gets interesting, folks, because David doesn't be like, all right, I'll bury your kids, just go home. That's not what happens. When David was told what Rizpah has done, he goes not to her sons first, but he goes first to retrieve stolen bones of Saul and Jonathan. We're told that they had been taken and were being kept by a foreign people. The injustice done to Armoni and Mephibosheth goes back before them to the injustices done to Saul and Jonathan. And there's this deep, simmering, personal animus that's coming to the surface here. David has been, it's being revealed, has been tolerating his best friend Jonathan and the past king Saul to not be properly buried. And so we're told that Rizpah's six-month protest awakens David to deeper wrongs than just Saul's seven descendants being killed. He's wronged his best friend and Israel's past king. Rizpah's action shames David into justice. Shame, there's a lot to say about shame, and I've only got 30 seconds left. Shame is a powerful tool in the hands of powerless people to protest injustice done against them. Rizpah doesn't have to shame David. David has acted shamefully in a shameless way. And her witness by those dead bodies broadcasts David's shame. Publicly, this is the same thing Tamar does to Judah. This happens a lot in the Old Testament scriptures. Where a woman who's been wronged demands justice by allowing the shame that's been done to them to be public. Which then shames the wrongdoer. So David goes and gives Rizpah's two sons a proper burial and he gets Saul and Jonathan and he gets the five descendants who have been hung publicly too and and buries them all in their proper place. And then verse 14, we're told, once everything the king had commanded was done, the burials, God responded to the prayers for the land. So who ended the famine, David? (laughs) I guess. You know, let's give them maybe 9%. Rizpah, right? Rizpah ended this famine. She alone in her grief and despair bore witness to the truth of Israel's king acting shamefully. And she protected a dying monument to his shame at an incredible cost to herself. Day after day. So that David would have to act eventually to save face and Gaffne summarizes this really well she says quote "lynching Rizpahs and Merib's sons did not heal the land or the people but doing right by the multiple wronged women did so what does this mean for us what do we take away from this today how do we appropriate this for ourselves. I think it's worth just naming how much damage has been done by people who claim to speak for God. The three words God told me have led to a world of unrighteousness. St. Paul, in our text from Timothy, alludes to this today. He alludes to his former life of rounding up Christians and killing them. And he says, you know, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So St. Paul and David are not above this and neither are we. Neither are we. So maybe we can beware of any person or group that claims to speak for God and pronounces violence on other people. Two, the use of religious language and concepts to justify violence against other people is usually for one's own benefit. David was cosplaying faithfulness here, right? Telling everybody, God told me that the reason this famine exists is because this previous dude sinned and now I've got to clean it up. But I'll do it. I'll do it. Because I love God and I love this nation. I'm just going to need seven kids. There's been a long history in our country of justifying violence against other people and using God to say that. We're on, uh, we're on ground that was taken from indigenous people because God told Europeans 300 years ago that this was theirs. You're, you're wasting it. Indigenous people. And we won't waste it. We're doing this to secure our freedom. Number three. We can look once again at who are, who's the one that, that suffers for powerful men using God's name to secure their power. It's always women and children. It's always women and children. It's children in Israel, it's children in hospitals, it's children in mosques and synagogues, it's 6-year-olds from the Chicago suburbs named Wadea Al-Fayumi, a Palestinian American who was stabbed 26 times by his Fox News-watching neighbor. It's a 40-year-old Detroit synagogue president named Samantha Wool, who was found stabbed to death outside her home a few days ago in Detroit. No known motive yet in the case, but the number of anti-Semitic posts online have increased 1,200% since Hamas attacked Israel a few weeks ago. It's always women and children. The less powerful pay a dear price for the religious and political violence of powerful men. But Christians, can we learn from Rizpah today? We are called to learn how to stand against injustice in a way that allows the shame of wrongdoing to be experienced by the wrongdoer. This is what Matthew 5 is about. When Jesus turn the other cheek is often used to tell people to not respond violently to violence. And yes it's that, but it's more than that. Turning the other cheek is a demand for dignity. Slapping was a backhanded thing. You usually were backhanded with a left hand, which we could just call the toilet paper hand. That's how you slap subordinates. And you slap them like this. So it would have been slapped, right, on the left cheek. But turning their cheek means you have to now slap me with your other hand. Which you slapped, not subordinates, but equals with. That's some Rizpah-ish right there. You know what I'm saying? That's not lay down and take it. That's stand up and bear it. Same with giving your cloak... And coat, being naked was an exceedingly shameful thing. Seeing someone else's nakedness, exceedingly shameful, unless you were going to sleep with them. This is why you know that weird passage about Noah's daughters uncovering their father's nakedness. It's a, sh- it's, it's a shameful uh, creepy thing. Sorry, that's two sermons in a row. I bring up creepy <laughs> stuff. But I'm, I'm I'm saying, if if you're gonna steal from me, take it all. And now you are covered in shame because you're seeing my nakedness. You see that? Same with going two miles instead of one. Matthew 5, I want to suggest, is the way that powerless people protest injustice. And Rizpah is our model today. So where do we need to learn how to oppose injustice? Like Rizpah. Where do we need to tell the truth about it? Where do we need to offer our dignity? Where do we need to learn how to stand against injustice that allows the shame of the wrong doing to be experienced by the wrong doer? I'll be honest, for me, I have to overcome my uh, allergy to shame because I experience a lot of inward shame. It's hard for me to affirm. That it's a powerful tool to oppose injustice. It's hard for me to get there. But I'm trying to learn from Jesus. Because, friends, today we proclaim the good news that although the logic of war runs on bloodshed and human rights violations, couched in pious language like there's a famine and this has to happen, or maybe we can call it proportional response. The logic of Jesus' kingdom, the logic of the political economy of God runs on creative acts of prophetic witness, opposing injustice by telling the truth, dignifying the oppressed in a way that brings shame to shameless oppressors. So let's learn this creative courage from Rizpah today. To respond to this, um, instead of uh, a prayer where we kind of Fill in, the, fill in the blank and pray. I want to use a prayer that was written by a priest, an Anglican priest. Her name is Layla. She's a Palestinian-American living in Texas, and she wrote this prayer for a day of fasting and prayer last week. It was called by Archbishop Hassam Naum. He's the uh, bishop of the Anglican Diocese of Jerusalem. So I like, uh, invite you to join with me in prayer as we learn to oppose injustice together. It'll be on uh, the screen here. Tim, if you would uh, put up that prayer for us. Let's pray. God of love, you created all people as one family and called us to live together in justice, harmony, and peace. Surround us with your love as we pray for the Holy Land. Lord, in your mercy. God of righteousness, who demands that our worldly governors take up their responsibility to protect those in their charge and uphold the dignity of all human beings, pour out your wisdom into the leaders of this world, especially Benjamin Netanyahu, the leaders of Hamas and Joe Biden. For all who bear such responsibility that they may put the good of the whole over their own greed for power. Lord, in your mercy. God of compassion, who even in the darkest times shows us your path, we give you thanks for all those who, in the face face of crisis wrought by evil doers, work to help the helpless, to hold out hope to the desolate, to speak for the voiceless, and to bring understanding and knowledge to a world darkened by ignorance and hate. For our siblings who risk much to hate others. That their actions may be successful and their words may be heard, Lord in your mercy. God of mercy who binds up the wounds of those who suffer, bless the victims of the consequences of fear and hate in the last week and over the last 75 years of conflict in the Holy Land, those injured and traumatized, those bereaved and grieving, those held as captives and prisoners those who face deprivation and desperation because of systems of violence and oppression so that they may move forward in this life standing firm in your truth and avoiding the temptation of vengeance. For all whose lives are forever marked by suffering that they may be blessed with the hope of your presence. Lord, in your mercy. God of life, whose faithfulness to us is never ending. We remember before you those who have died by the violence that has become shockingly routine in your holy land. Receive them into your heart where they may know the peace and joy of eternal life in you. For all who have died that they may rest in that place where pain is no more. Lord, in your mercy. God of justice who calls us to uphold the dignity of every human being, every child of this earth, beloved of you, Empower your church to help you heal this terrible cycle of violence and revenge. Give us courage to rise above our fear that nothing can be done in the face of the conflict and chaos of our own creating. Grant us the conviction to advocate for change and to work for the establishment of your peace, your shalom, your salam, in this broken world. For your dream of justice and peace on earth, and for us that we may take up your call and build it. Lord, in your mercy. Here. All this we pray in the name of the one who offered his life so that we might live, Jesus the Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.